Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at films and franchise one movie at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shurgi, and this time around we're looking at Hellraiser, the original one directed in 1987 by Clive Barker. With me is Thrasher. We have such podcasts to play for <laughs> you. And uh, we have a special guest, Ray Ortega. He is the host of the Podcaster Studio, Podcaster's Roundtable, and Podcast Quick Tips podcast ray welcome to sequel cast too hey matt thank you so much i love that it's sequel sequel quat see i can't talk sequel <laughs> cast i'm so scared by the movie i can't talk sequel <laughs> cast two i'm assuming that's a play on sequel um sort of so we started the show originally a sequel cast and then it took a year break and then when we came back i just thought i had to rebrand it somehow and adding a two to it seemed to match the sequel uh it's perfect the title thank you um, I did fight to have, like, the quickening or electric boogaloo added <laughs> to the nice. title, although I think Matt made the right decision. I think so. Um, oh, I like the quickening, you know, that's one of the worst sequels of all time. Let's associate that with our show. Um, but yeah, <laughs> so before we start talking about Hellraiser, Ray, I've been um, following around some of your shows, been some of your, uh, been on some of your email list, and I love that what you do is a podcast about podcasting, but you don't talk down to the listener, you sort of you uh, cover a variety of, of topics, whether it's it's technical, such as what microphone to use, or I liked you did a roundtable episode about what to do after your podcast goes for 10 episodes and you want to keep things fresh. Um, nice. I, I really like the broad topics of um, of your shows. I mean, what, what gave you the idea to do a podcast about podcasting? Well, back in, let's see, I started in 2007, and then when I hit 2009... When I started in 2007, it was all about teaching myself how the heck this stuff works. And there wasn't a ton of info. There was some, definitely some people there before me teaching uh, how to podcast. But then I figured it out and I had all these tips. And I just love sharing what I learned because I feel like if you don't share the stuff that goes in your brain, you don't push it back out, it's kind of wasted. Mm. So I said, you know what? This is the podcast I want to be doing because what I was doing at the time was really just a vehicle for me to learn podcasting. So I found it. That was my niche. I, that's all I wanted to talk about because at the time I was I was doing what other people who listen to my show do, and that's just like plug in your headphones, take notes, and learn. So I wanted to be part of the teaching of how how to start a podcast, basically. Yeah, one of the um, first podcasts I ever heard online that had to do about how to podcast was by T. Morris who wrote yeah. um, podcasting for dummies. He was an early one, but you're right. Yep. Like back, uh, back at the beginning, it was sort of the wild west. I would say to people, I did a podcast. They didn't know what I meant. I would say, well, it's like internet radio. They still didn't know what I meant. And <laughs> I, I think now, you know, with, um, things like WTF with Mark Marin or the Nerdist or, um, or some of the other slash films, some of the other things out there, it's starting to get a little more, mainstream i mean certainly npr has a lot of their shows available as a podcast but that's not quite the same thing but then you see the missing richard simmons i mean this was like a, a cover story on people magazine so yeah say, it was awesome i did listen to that one it's really good did you listen to oh what's um s-town 
I didn't. And ironically, I did not listen to Serial, which you, most people would assume. Of course, I've listened to it, but I just I didn't. And it didn't stick for me. I only listened to season two of Serial, which people said was the bad one. And then I couldn't get into the first season. Um, <laughs> but S-Town is pretty interesting. But I mean, regardless, those are people with a lot more money and, and so forth. But I think I think what's great about podcasting is you can do it without a huge investment up front. Unlike doing like a YouTube show or doing something else. For sure. And what I think is cool is that it doesn't mean that the quality is worse. I and mean, oftentimes mm-hmm. the content can be better. It's what people are actually looking for than what comes out of a big studio. And it just takes a little know-how with some decent gear. And we're talking sub $100. And you can put, you know, you can be right alongside those awesome podcasts. Now, obviously S-Town is, that's a different genre. I mean, that is people creating stories with all kinds of production elements if you want to take the time you can do that but yeah i think that the the playing field while it seems unlevel at a lot of times with what's out the top of the charts right now um the most the majority of podcasts are what we're doing right here and it's good that's right yeah i um about once a month i teach a podcasting and digital editing course for a kbu fm and a nonprofit um community run radio station here in Portland, Oregon, and we get all sorts of people coming in to take the class. And it's always people will go up assuming what a podcast is, and then when they learn its actual work, they don't do it necessarily. Mm-hmm. And uh-huh. and the work, just because I say it's work, that doesn't mean it's not fun. But it's certainly a, a time investment and um, requires some foresight and planning, especially especially if you want to get things done on a schedule. Yeah, it's a grind. But- I mean the the. The fact of the matter is it's easy to do the first 10 episodes right off the top of your head. And then you start to realize, wow, I have to actually start researching or I got to watch a movie in our case. Yeah. Right. I mean, that is yeah. that's a time investment. And when you when you do that on a weekly basis, which is typically the sort of sweet spot for growing an audience, I guess if you want to say it that way. But you, that week you, you publish an episode that next week comes barreling down on you like pinhead. It's brutal. <laughs> but do you have any thoughts, Thrasher? Well, no, just just that I I, I know uh, a lot of people who doing doing a, a creative endeavor once they love, but then the thought that they might have to do it again is is <laughs> daunting. And I see that I see that played out with podcasts a lot. Lots of lots of podcasts that start out great, get like three episodes in, and vanish in part because nobody can see themselves putting that kind of work in. Um, there, there's something to be said for making it a routine part of your week, just just to get those episodes out. I'm reminded in college of a, doing a, a life drawing class, and the, we had an assignment. You had to do like a self portrait. You had a whole week to do it, and some students would spend 30 minutes to a self portrait and turn it in, saying they were done. And the teacher put uh, her hand on the student's shoulder and says, "Oh no, dear, these things take hours." <laughs> So, Ray, if someone was to listen to one of your podcasts, which one would you recommend they start with? Should they do it like by the topic that speaks to them or listen to it in order? What would you recommend? The next one. The next one, okay. <laughs> so, depend, depends on when you're listening to this, but the Podcaster Studio episode 101 is actually going to be 101. It, it's going to be the best place to start because it's a com- comprehensive. Actually, it's I won't call it comprehensive. It's a get you started right now, and the audio has been recorded and even cut 
but I, for some reason, decided, hey, let's add 11 videos to go along with it. Oh, geez. <laughs> so that's holding off the production. And uh, But as soon as that's out, that will be the best place to start because it'll be literally this is the beginning. Otherwise, always, for most podcasts, unless you are like a storytelling podcast, start uh, you know from the most recent and work your way backwards, especially with a how-to because time changes that information. That's right. I mean, even the quality of like USB microphones has increased a lot over the past few years. And um, even hell, the, the pricing of the different podcasting <laughs> services. When I started, there wasn't really a Libsyn. You had to, I had to use like a WordPress plugin to get an RSS feed going. Like I had to, it was like a 30 step process. And now it's much easier than it used to be. Yeah, you're OG, man. If you've been along that, been around that long. Yeah, you're 2005. Original, so ugh. OP, original podcaster. <laughs> That'll be a good name for a show, OP. Uh, all right, so let's... Uh, and for more information about your shows, uh, where do you recommend people go to, Ray? Uh, go to the podcasterstudio.com. Podcasterstudio.com. So uh, let's go, get on to talking about Hellraiser. Uh, this is a film, as I mentioned, a directorial feature debut by Clive Barker. It's based off mm. his uh, novella, The Hellbound Heart. Produced by Christopher Figg, Clive Barker also wrote the screenplay, starring Andrew Robinson, Claire Higgins, and Ashley Lawrence, with music by Christopher Young, cinematography by Robert, or sorry, by Robin Vigen, edited by Richard Martin and Tony Randall. This uh, came out in '87, according to Box Office Mojo, off a budget of one million, made fourteen million, so it made a lot of money, considering its budget. And um, yeah, I mean, the first time I saw Hellraiser was I saw the box at a video store. With the big pinhead. I mean, it's a very striking uh, look for a character. It looked demonic. It looked more disturbing than some of the other things like Chucky or, or uh, Freddy Krueger or Jason Voorhees at the time. But I, for whatever reason, I never rented them as a kid, I think, because I saw they had like five million direct-to-video sequels. And that made me kind of confused as to where to begin. And um, so I recently was uh, found the first movie on Netflix and caught it there. And then since then, I've picked up uh, some of the series used on dvd for pretty cheap and i've uh i've been enjoying them you know in, in a way in some ways they're more intellectual in other ways they're like extremely violent it's a very like tonally they're very uh this is a very strange movie um ray what did uh, what is the first time you saw hellraiser you mentioned it was on videotape yeah same as you i'm you know right next to probably attack of the killer tomatoes or something when you go to the vhs store for a rental and you're a kid it was so much fun right and just look at the covers and you know hellraiser is a striking one probably at the time i probably didn't even think i could rent that and bring that home i don't Mm. recall but i did see it if if not some of it and like you said pinhead the lead character very striking i two really iconic visuals which are pinhead and the box so i don't know what they call that but that box both of those things i think have stuck with, with me through time even though i'm not really i wouldn't say a fan of the genre i didn't see any of the others but those those are very iconic creations i, I believe from uh clive there who sounds like a record producer clive barker sounds like he should be making records <laughs> not videos it does uh thrasher what about you when did you first watch uh, this one so so I, I think out of the whole Hellraiser series, I think it was the second film, Hellbound, Hellraiser mm. 2, was the first I saw. But the first time I saw the original Hellraiser was in the early 90s on the Bravo Network, of all places. Uh, back back when it showed independent films and opera. <laughs> and it showed this movie, I think, pretty much uncensored, which was 
kind of rare. Because you could find Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2 all over cable in the 90s, but it was very often a cut version because of some of the extreme right. imagery. Can you keep talking, yeah. uh, Thrasher oh, and Ray? My dog is being a jerk. Hold on. Yep, yep. I can, I can absolutely... Uh, always, uh, always keep talking. But of course, that was one of the the fun the fun oh. things about uh, oh. being very much into yeah. to Hellraiser uh, was you know wanting wanting to introduce it to friends, tracking down a copy on VHS or DVD, and then you know my friends watching it for the first time. But then I'm going through with a critical eye, trying to pick out am I am I seeing footage I haven't seen before? Am I seeing a, a different version of this film? than the one that I saw on cable so many times. It's kind of a video archaeology that I, I still enjoy to this day. Yeah, definitely, let's see, what, nudity and gore. I mean, it only took about three minutes, so congrats to the genre, the horror genre, for me to say out loud, oh, that's disgusting. I mean, like, they hit you real real, real quick up front with the hooks. And You know what? Hey, I get the humor. It's a hook. I got it. And they got me. I watched the rest. Yeah, and I that that hook scene. I mean, we'll go into more detail, of course, when we go over go over the story. But something that struck me rewatching that opening hook scene uh, for this episode of the sequel cast is, you know, this like a lot of Clive Barker's work, Hellraiser has a lot of erotic and psychosexual undercurrents. But it it occurs to me that the way they display the the gore in this film is is pornographic they show you just about everything the only time the camera ever turns away from showing something potentially grotesque or disgusting is when frank you know quote unquote feeds on people uh, and I, even then i think the only reason they turn away is that they don't have a really good effect uh, right. however the effects that they do that they can do well they go back to time and time again and create these amazing horror visuals well, yeah, I thought it was pretty impressive for the time. And I actually, it's funny because you say pornographic and, and the effects, because to me, all I could see was Fifty Shades of Grey meets The Fly meets Beetlejuice. Mm. That's what movie is for me. I mean, it's funny you mentioned the effects. I happen, when I watch it this time around, I listen to it with the audio commentary with uh, Clive Barker and Ashley Lawrence, and uh, I think uh, one of the writers of Hellraiser 2 for some reason. And they were mentioning um, there's that lovely transformation sequence where yes. it, it starts it as a pulpy, bloody mess. Yeah. yeah, it pops out of the floor and becomes this, like, skeleton humanoid thing that screams. That wasn't in the rough cut of the film, but when they showed it to um, New World Pictures, they liked the movie so much they were willing to cough up money for They said, you should probably put some special effects in here. <laughs> and that's, like, I find, like, that transformation one of the most enjoyable parts of the film. But, yeah, you mentioned the the sexual overtones that for some reason hellraiser reminds me of little shop of horrors and that really? the, the woman is going out to um get the men take them back to the house and feed them in this case it's to her her ex-lover turned zombie skeleton thing well i guess we to give to give listeners some context if they haven't seen Hellraiser, yes. we probably ought to get into the, the, the yeah very good this, uh, let, let me give a, a loose summary of this if if i can it's sort of a dense film but so there's this this guy, he's kind of a scallywag, Frank Cotton. He has an affair with this uh, British lady. He gets this, um, you know, gets this puzzle, puzzle, box. puzzle box. Yep. Uh, what's the name for that thresher? It has a name. The, the official name, and I don't think it, I don't think it gets introduced to like the third or fourth film, but the official name is the Lament Configuration. Mm. Oh, the Lament. Okay, right. The Lament Configuration, this sort of 
puzzle box that it's it's kind of like the Rubik's Cube from hell. You keep on staring at it. You can't figure out how to put it together. You get sort of obsessive with it, as this uh, Frank guy does. And all of a sudden, when he when he solves it, he uh, all these chains get hooked into him. You see these creatures, and he gets ripped into pieces. Uh, he's literally in pieces, his eyeball in one area, his mouth in another area, all over the bloody floor. And, you know, quite some time later, you have uh, Julia, who is the woman that Frank had an affair with, and she's married to Larry, who is Frank's brother. And um, they are not in the best shape with their relationship. And uh, their daughter, Kirsty is uh, coming to the new house to visit. But as they move in, Larry cuts his hand and it bleeds all over the floor, um, a bit over the top, perhaps. And this is, is all it takes to, to revive Frank. He's sort of in this limbo state in the floorboards of the home. And he goes and uh, it turns into a, a sort of zombie bloody creature thing and we and zaniness ensues as they say yes as as he reunites with julia and convinces her to go out and bring him men so that he can feed on their blood and make himself whole yeah, exactly from, av- from average housewife to serial killer on the turn of a dime <laughs> mm-hmm. in fact according to the uh, commentary at one point the studio didn't like the name uh, hellraiser and they were thinking up alternate names and uh, a woman from the crew said uh what a woman would do for a good fuck would be a good title for the film <laughs> but um they couldn't go with that but who knows um but yeah that that's hellraiser and sort of a, a high level um uh, one thing i thought was interesting about the cast you have sean chapman plays frank cotton but his voice is dubbed over by an american actor because they thought it wouldn't play in the United States with a, a British accent, even though the rest of the cast is, well, I guess Ashley isn't British, but the, you know the the rest of the cast is mainly Brits. Yeah, I believe weren't, weren't they mostly actors that had been inherited from the theater group that Clive Barker used to lead up? Yeah, that's right, including Doug Bradley, who's Pinhead himself. Yeah, most of the a lot of the actors and some of the producers and costume people um, before he started writing short stories. Clive Barker wrote and starred in these like underground plays in London. And so it was a lot of his familiar troupe he had been working with in his sort of prior life before getting into the movies. So Dude is twisted. He, Oh yeah. Have you ever read any of his stories, uh, Ray? I no. I mean, I've seen, you know, the popular stuff over the years growing up and just, you know, it's just horror films like kids. It's fun. But looking back as an adult, man, uh-huh. guy is, He's got he's got some stuff going on. He does, and and the stories are even more, um, especially the sexual angle. I think is even more heightened. Um, wow. it, it's just really crazy. You think about Clive Barker and how he's an icon of horror, and yet he really only directed three movies. He did Hellraiser, he did Nightbreed, and he did um, Lords of Illusion. And I've read the novel Nightbreed was based on a cabal. That that is a wonderful and disturbing book, but but also sort of weird, weirdly romantic in its way. That's crazy to me. That's all he did. I feel like the name is so much more iconic. I I, I would have guessed that he did some of the bigger movies, bigger horror movies. I'm surprised by that. Well, I think in part it's because like. Pinhead got so big uh, and, and became such a pop culture icon. It, it does. 
it does lead you to believe that Pinhead's creator would be a, a much more active force in horror filmmaking. But on Cl- Clive Barker's name uh, did gain a lot of a lot of cachet. I remember when when Imagica came out, it was never it was never uh, referred to or advertised as Imagica. It was always Clive Barker's Imagica. Mm-hmm. And after Pinhead got big, his name was featured sort of possessively in a lot of book and comic covers. Yeah, really famously when his books. Uh... Books of Blood was sort of his first collection of short stories. When they came to the U.S., it had a quote from Stephen King, I've seen the future of horror, and it is Clive Barker. <laughs> and uh, Roger Ebert um, famously didn't like horror movies. He didn't like this movie, and he, he quoted the Stephen King quote, and he said, maybe he's talking about another Clive Barker. Which <laughs> <laughs> is, is a bit mean. But um, he's just really unique. You know, you don't see... Uh, the horror movies of an 80s were a certain kind you know they usually were based around a personality and uh, of some sort and had a lot of sequels but hellraiser isn't exactly as jokey as something like say leprechaun or wishmaster or or the friday the 13th films right of course right welcome to prime time bitch right it's uh, a <laughs> crazy punchlines and hellraiser i'm surprised at how intimate a movie it is it's basically takes place in a house and then some of it takes place in a hospital yeah, pretty much just come to daddy. That might be the only sort of wink-wink line he's, that you get in that. Well, right. well actually, speaking of, of come to daddy, this is something I think has always itched in the back of my mind watching this film, but it really came to the fore in my pre-search for the show. Do you think that Frank Cotton might secretly be Kirsten's biological father? Hmm. Because we know, yeah, we know he doesn't like. We know he doesn't like Larry. We know that you know he has sort of quote unquote taken that which is Larry with his affair with Julia. Do you think we're supposed to read in that he may have had an affair with with uh, Larry's first wife as well, and that Kirsty was the result of that affair? It's certainly possible. I mean, it does seem to be his M.O. Right, like he gets off on stealing the girl. I'm sure. So I didn't think about that, but I mean, it's certainly the door is open, which is kind of a joke because that her dream sequence where she opens the door or a flashback <laughs> sequence where she opens the door. But I think I think it goes deeper than that because one one when uh, Kirsty is first introduced, uh, Larry and two movers are moving a, a mattress upstairs, and you know the the movers do make this you know statement. Oh wow, she's she certainly inherited her mother's looks, uh, and he's like, hey, her mother's dead, uh, and. I feel like there is a subtext to that, that what they're saying is that she doesn't look a thing like Larry. Well, mm. at, at the beginning of this film, you get this brilliant intercutting that is a bit like what we saw in the movie Excalibur, where in Excalibur, um, John Borman intercuts, oh, like uh, knights using a battering ram to open the door as um, Uther Pendragon is having sex with a witch. And in this, you sort of intercut um, Larry moving a bed up some stairs and, you know, smacking himself with his nail while you're getting the flashback of, um, Over of, of, of Julia the, her uh, yeah, of remembering her affair. It's, uh, I may have I may have turned my head during that nail scene. You can they you know, oh, you foreshadow yeah. it, right? They tell you it's they coming, do. it's coming, it's coming. I was. I happened to be at the tail end of my lunch. I said, "This can't happen." Yeah, right now. it's a big old nail. Like I, I oh thought, my God, so I thought gross. it was gonna, like everyone's. You know, prick their finger on something, but that's mm. it. You should have gone to the hospital. Really, that looks like it'd be quite the infection. 
Yeah. Well, I, th- I think they, they do say that he goes to get... To, oh, no, he does go to the hospital because he gets stitches and he talks about how his yeah, bad the dinner experience party. with the doctor. Yep. Yep. It's it's the one thing is, like, the, the level of bleeding he has, though, he probably should have, like, more bandages on his arm, more than just the band-aid we see later. Oh, and then Although, she's, she's trying to block the blood flow with her hand and it's just, like, gooping over everywhere. I think fake blood has gotten a lot better in the years. Let's just say since 1987. Mm-hmm. Well, I will say this: those those slow mo shots of the blood splattering on the floor, I, I really like that because the slow mo does create the illusion that it has more of the consistency of, of real blood, which is very gloppy and and, and globular. I, I, I also love I also love the slow mo before like they had like higher frame rates, so it looks like they're just like slowing down 24 frames, and it's just bad, but. Yeah, as a as a video guy, that that stuck out. <laughs> that is always interesting. Speaking of video, when uh, I think the version I saw was on DVD, it was some like THX transfer. But even then, some of it was kind of rough. And you notice when you watch these old movies, any of the special effects scenes look so much worse than the rest of the movie because they had to have like sixteen passes on the original film elements, mm. which degrades it. And now with digital, you can. Um, you know, make it as clean or dirty as you want. And it really... I mean, this movie is, is dimly lit on purpose. It It's very moody. You have that very gothic lighting. You have... Um, in a way, some of it reminds me a bit of Cinderella or something. with like the wicked stepmother. Um, it is just a very interesting... Uh, interesting story we have here we, we mentioned leary and, and julia what do you think about kirsty played by ashley lawrence uh, who would you like to go first um you can go thrasher no i overall i, I like her i like that I, I like that she is more active in the film than the typical final girl in a slasher movie uh i i like that she's clever i like that she is able to bargain with the Cenobites when she finally, in the creatures from the box, when she finally encounters them, uh, she, you know, to buy her own freedom by turning in, by by leading them to Frank, who they want they want revenge on because no one's ever supposed to escape their tortures. Uh, I even I even like when it t- towards the end when she's getting really really sort of panicky. She she never gets quippy, but everything she says to my ears, sounds like something that a, a real young woman from this time period would say under that kind of duress. Mm. Did you think she did a good job, Ray? Or Yeah, I did. I mean, you know, you got to realize what you're watching is 87. So, I mean, it looked very 87. It was great. They had very, uh, like, Vidal Sassoon and some uh, Xanadu <laughs> hair, makeup yeah. going. It was, it was fantastic. So once they got past that, yeah, I thought she did a good job. I mean, I was overtaken by the fact that when she did battle with the with the the what are the what are they called cinnabites cinnabites i want to say cinnabons but cinnabites yeah (laughs) when when she did that these crazy evil creatures who can make chains come out of like you know oblivion suddenly were you know at this girl's mercy you know they didn't move and they just let her let them do what she wanted to them with a box but um other than that yeah she was good and that's not that's not her fault no, and I think, I mean, certainly her hair looks dated, but not as much as, like, uh, Julia's outfits suffer the worst, the sort of 80s business Oh, Julia's woman. prime time, yeah. Yeah, she the, is, the broad that, shoulder that's all pads. My yep. Xanadu oh. to the max. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, but, no, she fit in. The um, the daughter, other than, she actually, it didn't look that far removed from today. 
it, Julie, with her haircut in the 80s fashions, that is exactly what my mother looked like in the 80s. Nice. My <laughs> mother had hair like that. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't... I, I guess I'm kind of glad that they didn't... I was expecting the sex scene because she was the young girl. Like, you know, mm, we already got... Right. Like, it was... Like I said, it's Fifty Shades of Grey meets The Fly meets Beetlejuice. But... Because they made it very... Um, that first sex scene with Frank and... Uh, and, and the wife, I you know, I, there was a moment where I thought, ah, they're gonna go there with with the with the girl too. But I'm I'm glad they didn't because it just would have taken away from her character. I think. I mean, they did kind of. She did meet. A, she does have a love interest, but it didn't go where I thought it might. But it, well, just, I think, I think she does have a, a sexual relationship. Uh, Kirsten has a sexual relationship with her boyfriend, but it's it's never shown because that the movie is not really about their their seemingly healthy relationship it's about the toxic relationship between frank and julia yeah and i think you know frank i'm i don't he's that guy i feel like has been in plenty of movies and he looks you expect him to turn bad but he does not really the bad guy but just looking at him he has that sort of you probably typecast as like that guy looks like average dad who's I, I i guess i'm flashing back to the movie the stepdad i don't know if you guys saw that trilogy of, of of wonders but uh oh, yeah. Yeah, he seems like i'm waiting for him to turn evil but he didn't so good job i have to say you know um it's interesting that the boyfriend steve he's not given much to do and he doesn't really have an active role at the end of the film he just is throwing bottles of glass around and he doesn't really do much to save her and that's done very on purpose by design but um, reportedly, the actor Robert Hines was very upset about that mm. because he thought. Yeah, I loved his I loved his bar fight attempt at a creature <laughs> from hell. Yeah, smashing a bottle over its head. That's I right. don't get it. That's not gonna <laughs> do much. But uh, which goes on, I think we should talk a bit, you know, about the the visual interest of the Cenobites oh, in this movie. Yeah. It's uh, I have one I have one question though, as from yes. from a from an outsider. Do you? I didn't hear mention of spoiler alerts on the in the intro. No, does that happen? Know, no. Did it, people it, know it that coming in? I think they know it coming in. Usually, the stuff we talk about is old enough. We should probably start adding a disclaimer True. to the start of the show. But that's um. But do, do a we good point. really? I mean, are people entitled to film <laughs> criticism that doesn't tell you anything about the film? Uh, I mean, I know what you're saying, and there's also yeah, like it was a movie. Stuff happened. I liked it. I mean, like, what? Yeah, you have to kind of. I agree that you have to kind of spoil a movie to get into an in-depth discussion. I mean, if like later in the show we have a segment called "What You're Watching," where we talk about another movie or something that we've seen. In that segment, I will not. I will tend not to spoil things, or if I do, I'll give some sort of a warning. But I tend. I tend to think we're somewhat safe because the stuff we pick is somewhat older. And, it's true. Um, but that's an absolutely fair question because you do hear spoiler warning all over the place it reminds me uh, when i was in high school for we had the um oh what do you call it we had the section in the school paper where people write like the 15 female i'm single call me what do you call that the uh the the the, the, uh classified the relationship pages relationship pages right so i i wrote something in the relationship page that said in the sixth sense bruce willis is dead for the whole movie Uh and the movie had been out for a month at the time and oh, man. I heard so many you're stories. Evil. You're you're a pinhead. Yeah, I guess I am pinhead. But I heard so many stories of people's parents reading the school paper, reading that, and slamming the paper on the the table and going, "Damn it!" Um, and I thought it a month a was month safe to see it. If they were really that interested. In but this, it. it was this was the late. <laughs> Although 90s, that is still kind of a, a dick move because that twist is the only thing that movie has going for uh, it. It was a dick move, but I don't regret it. But um, speaking of dicks, we have the Cenobites. 
Doug Bradley <laughs> as Pinhead is is so great with the deep voice and the you know the mesmerizing look with the pins coming out of his head. It it's really interesting in the marketing. It's all focused on Pinhead, even though he's like in the movie for probably less than ten minutes. I would say there's probably only about five minutes of Cenobite screen time if we come down to it. But the designs are so fascinating. Whether it's uh, the um, sort of like the, the 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 one with the teeth, and you got the fat one. Oh, Butterball, yeah. Yeah, the teeth. I, I mean, all mm. of them seem the the core group are all fairly iconic. I was like, you know, I feel like even if you've seen the movie, you you you've seen those characters. I don't know. The teeth one is just. Yeah, it does its job. It scares the hell out of me. The teeth one reminds me a little bit of of Alien, but it's just so yes. I don't know. Like I don't like going to the dentist and like you see the exposed gums and the teeth and ah, uh, it's. Well, come on, I mean, how many movies? I, I mean, I make a joke about the Fifty Shades and the Fly and Beetlejuice, but it feels like a lot of movies like tip their hat to this <laughs> this mm-hmm. movie. I mean, even Alien, it has very even the the. Maybe it's just Hollywood stock slime that comes off of some type of creature, but oh, it sure. very much look like Alien. I, I think part of what it is is between those four Cenobites and all their grotesque and exaggerated features, between the four of them, you're going to find something that disturbs you. Whatever your <laughs> disturbing thing is, yeah, right. you're going to find it somewhere on one of these guys. My favorite is the dialogue when when they're going back and forth in the attic with the with Pinhead and then the female one or whatever her name is and they're they're sort of exchanging dialogue, uh, and it's just it's creepy. It's almost like they're one person, you know, almost kind of mm. like when you mm-hmm. you uh, have a sent you know you have a conversation uh, with another couple with your wife and you're finishing each other's sentences. You're like, what's going on with those two? <laughs> Well, you know, it's it's funny you mention that because the 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 name uh, Cenobite it comes from Cenobitic uh, monasticism, which was a spiritual movement in the uh, Middle Ages and Renaissance. Which it was it was a religious scholarly monastic lifestyle that stressed having this kind of tightly knit religious community. And, and I, I I feel like that that's why they go with the name Cenobite. All these creatures have been living together for so long, they are just in sync, totally. Mm. And, and what I think is clever is this film doesn't try to explain where the Cenobites come from. Uh, some of the sequels make that mistake, and that makes them much less interesting. Mm. But you just, in this I, movie, they show up and you know they're bad news. They're filmed with a lot of smoke and blue lighting, and they got the deep, modulated voices. And that's, that's my a- thought about about not being the you know they're only featured for a few minutes mm-hmm. like Thrasher was saying maybe five minutes total or, or whatever it is but you I always feel like maybe because it's the cover and you know Pinhead is coming but I'm always thinking about them and the background and and who's behind this so I feel like they're sort of present even without being on screen. Well, I think that also goes back to this being such an intimate, tight little movie. Uh, we don't learn anything about the Cinebites. We learn nothing about the puzzle box. Uh, and what what little explanation we get from Frank is still couched in these poetic terms. That, you know, it, it opens doorways and you get all the pleasures of heaven or hell. That's it. That's that's all we get. And it's like the line in Star Wars about the spice mines of Kessel. It just gets the gears in my head turned. And that makes the experience of this film so much more richer. It trusts me to fill in some gaps. It set up. It sets up the sequels. Come on, oh, yeah. <laughs> they just they want to cash yeah, in. Yeah, sure. Uh, what do you think about the snake monster? 
Oh, that wacky wolf. Uh, is that what that is? Or... I don't know if it's a snake. It looks sort of like a snake to me, like a little flesh tube with... Is this the bottle break over the head mm -hmm. one? Yeah. yeah. That thing that's chasing her down yeah. the hall? Yeah, that one didn't... I mean, whatever. It's creepy as hell. If, that's... if it's in my dreams, I'm I'm running. <laughs> I'm running like, you know, like I'm scared as all hell. But uh, yeah, that was the one creature I was like, yeah. It, it doesn't... Like, like a lot of things in this movie, it doesn't actually get a name, so I just called it the Wacky Wall Crawler, because that's kind of how it's introduced in that tunnel that Kirsten opens, which he's playing with a puzzle box in the uh, hospital. I, I overall like that creature, but I think I like it more uh, because it's very, it's very Evil Dead. It looks like something that would show up in an Evil Dead film. Uh, it, is kind of, uh, it is kind of like of the same family with the giant head that bursts through the cabin door in Evil Dead 2. Um, it, it doesn't exactly serve, aside from adding some weirdness or, uh, about halfway through the film in that hospital scene, it doesn't, it, it doesn't add it too much to the, the story, but I do, I do like its presence. I mean, the, the, the Cenobites are clearly alien mentally, but this is something that is alien physically. It's the main in-boss. That's yeah. true. Yeah. It's going for the <laughs> puzzle box and she, Kirsten has to get it back. I mean, it looks more to me. It looks more like a monster from the Dan Aykroyd movie "Nothing But Trouble," <laughs> which is this horrendous uh, haunted house movie with Chevy Chase and Demi Moore. Um, I, you know, I really love how intense the movie gets in its last third, where Kirsty is at at the hospital and she has her encounter with the Cenobites, and then she goes back home. But in the meantime, Frank has killed Larry and has sort of taken his skin and messily glued it onto his his body and you get a really good uh performance of uh andrew robinson as larry having to channel frank and he's kind of a he doofus a of... at the beginning of the movie but then he's like menacing at the end and it's a neat uh it's a good acting job yeah there's a lot of brooding menace in that scene and i love that even though he's still covered in blood you know they had that quick lie oh i had to kill frank in self-defense just the I love the menace in that scene. It, it's that scene more than any other part of this movie. I am afraid for Kirstie's safety. The other thing is, is it also kind of is the culmination of Julia's story because when Julia mm. first meets the resurrected, corpseified Frank, and he talks her into bringing home men for for him to to consume. At first, she is very squeamish. She's very hesitant. She's very sloppy. But throughout the scene, she gets without the film, she gets more and more used to it and methodical and professional with every attempt. But the one thing she holds on to is that she won't let Frank kill Larry. You know, she she doesn't quite love Larry, but like Larry kind of symbolizes what's left of her humanity and morality. So once it becomes clear to the audience that. Uh, Frank has taken Larry's place as well as his skin, that's when we know Julia has completely crossed over into this sort of serial killer realm of pure evil. And, spoiler alert, a hammer? I mean, I'm not... Really? <laughs> I, I, first of all, I didn't expect her to do the killing. And I was like, oh, okay, she's doing it. She went... She flipped really quick. And, uh, yeah, just a hammer. Like, I gotta get a, quite a few shots in here to make this happen. Wow. <laughs> And I love as Frank becomes more whole. I like the I like that in addition to just the special effects, as we see more, you know, literal meat build up on his bones. I love it when he's just kind of talk. He's like, I, I I'm in pain. My yeah. nerve endings are starting to work again. Or when he's smoking like the first cigarette he's had in ages, and like he's he's clearly enjoying having lungs and being able to taste this this little vice that that he used to enjoy. 
that's where I first thought, man, they did a really great job. His first iteration where he's standing up, mm. and I'm like, I mean, I'm I'm not sitting there going, wow, that's some cheesy special effects. I was impressed. I was like, that that's impressive. I was like, that's what we look like without skin, huh? All right, not good. Yeah, the other thing I like about it, uh, it is, you know, because we we has all that muscle, but he still has bits of bone poking through. Something I really really like about uh, Oliver Smith's performance as Skinless Frank is that he never he only makes subtle movements when he's speaking and moving he never moves so much that it breaks the illusion of the special effect we never see you know cuz you his jawline is exposed for a lot of that but he never moves his jaw so much that we realize that jaws can't move that can you please name this episode skinless frank frank that's the best name i've heard in a long time <laughs> that was awesome Skinless Frank is pretty good. Uh, I do love at the end how the Cenobites come back. It's a nice comeuppance for um, when they get Frank again. And you just see how the really gross effects of the, uh, the, the chains, the hooks, pulling yeah. his skin. And I guess the actor had to stay in that position for like a whole day as they Ugh. rigged up all the special effects. That's where when, she, when, when the daughter, Christy, when she fights, I was uh -huh. like, wait, where's all that? I mean, that's typical, right? I mean, but yeah, I was kind of, that's where I was like, ah, a little bit more of a, a fight out of the Cenobites there would have been nice. Yeah, because she just seems so, to uh, become like Wonder Woman and just sort of blast them all apart. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, they give her that. so much time with the box. Like, mm -hmm, it's just like, mm -hmm. she sits there and fiddles while they just sort of stand around waiting for her to figure it out. <laughs> no, and, not you know, the box. That, that was the only thing that didn't land is this is clearly a time digital effects are starting. So they're blending digital with the practical effects and the digital it's rough. I'm sure back then it was like, whoa, that's really cool. But well, actually, when it came I, to effects that didn't land with me, I don't think that's digital. I think they were oh, just drawing animation maybe? exposure. Yeah. To sort of superimpose a drawn special. Yeah. Effect. Well, well actually, right. yeah, I'm glad I listened to the commentary because they mentioned, I think you're talking about the sort of lightning effect on the monsters. Anything, the the, the, all the right. box, the stuff that comes off the box, you uh -huh. name it. All of the, uh, Clyde Barker mentioned, him and a Greek special effects man stayed up one night with an 18-pack of beer and knocked out all those special effects. That's amazing. Having to paint now frame I by like it. Having to yeah, having it. to paint frame by frame those little things of lightning because the studio wasn't willing to pay for it, and so they managed to get this guy to do it for nothing to have his work featured in a movie. And Clive Barker helped him because he had an art background. Um, it, it, I agree. Like those effects look rough, and I, I started laughing at how cheesy. Some of it is because you expect a there to be more of a fight and b there to be some really like gory kills as she defeats each of these Cenobites, and um, you don't really get that. They all kind of go down the same way. Yeah, bunch of Boba Fett's. Yeah, <laughs> bunch of Boba Fett's. That could also be a good show title. Where? <laughs> um, what do you think about the sort of epilogue of the movie where they throw the box into the fire? Mm. Oh, yeah, because, you know, th throughout the film, Kirsty keeps having run-ins with this creepy homeless man. I guess the most disturbing one when she's working in her job in the pet shop, uh -huh. and he's, like, pulling crickets out of a reptile enclosure and eating them. So, yeah, at the, at the end, uh, the house burns down, and it's un unclear whether it burns down because of all the structural damage the dimensional rifts cause, or, or if maybe Kirsty and her boyfriend start the fire. But there's just piles of burning rubble. They, uh, she throws the puzzle box in, and then the homeless guy shows up, 
picks up the puzzle box, catches on fire, <laughs> but then he explodes into this demon made of bones and flies away. And then the puzzle box gets deposited on the same table in front of the same merchant that Frank purchased it from in the, in the prologue to the film. Yeah, he turns into a pterodactyl, pterodactyl and turns it and goes back and gives the box and starts to process over again. You know, it's so mm. I, I, I was, I, I must have missed something because I was like, is that the house that burned down? It just seemed like random fires in a parking lot. I was like, what is going on? So I probably missed that part. But um, yeah, it does explain this weird appearance of this homeless guy who's just staring at her from behind uh, various corners. And the homeless of the guy, city. yeah, he looks a bit like a uh, comic book writer Alan Moore. Although mm. current it, Alan Moore, yeah, yeah, current Alan Moore, it's not him, but and it, it's neat that with the effect, it's so brief with the pterodactyl creature, you don't see it flying, you just see a crane shot from the point of view of the creature as uh, Kirsty kind of points towards it as it flies up in the distance. But it's very effective, it surprised me. There's no way you can predict that would happen. No. <laughs> I guess yeah. From I guess from you know a storytelling angle, I do like stories that come full circle and begin as they end. So I like the idea that the puzzle box can kind of like a monkey's paw is now back out in the world, and someone else is going to bargain for it and and, and suffer the consequences. Um, I kind of like it, it's more it's like an implied mythology. I mean, what is this skeletal demon? Is he the creator of the box? Is he the guardian of the box? Uh, it, it just gives you more weird questions that your brain's going to fill in. And I guess, you know, the movie wants to give you one last stinger because it doesn't want a completely happy ending. Right. And for me, I mean, I'm, you know, the, the movie starts and they are in wherever they are, you know, Asia or something. I don't know why. It's supposed to be Morocco, I think. Morocco, okay. Mm. But I don't know what's going on here. And I'm not sure that gets really explained, right? Like, why is Frank involved in this? How did he... No, nah, you know, he says the box was always his, which is probably something more just philosophical. But, um, yeah, so it comes back around. I'm like, OK, so it's they keep putting this box in front of new people. But I, I might have missed it. Why did why was Frank after this box in the first place? Well, and that yeah, maybe comes in the sequels. Yeah, I think it is. It is all the information you need, I think, is in this movie. But they. You, you sort of like you have to read between the lines, but what because everything we learned from Frank, we learned from Julia's memories of him, but also from all the bric a brac that's accumulated in the house. We know he's a drifter, we know he's traveled the world, but he, he's clearly obsessed with his vices and, and sort of physical experiences. We know he's obsessed with sex, he's got all, all those sex manuals, he's got those like fetishes and idols of fertility, he's got those photos of him with, with many, many, many different women. My, I, I believe the implication we are supposed to take from that is that at the time we see Frank uh, when he purchases the puzzle box, he's so strung out and so burned out, he has reached the limits of what this world can offer as far as ex extremes of pleasure. And so he's heard about this puzzle box and what it can do, and that's why he gets it. He gets it to experience more. If he's if he's exhausted all the pleasures of this world, he'll just take the pleasures of the next, and that's why he sought out the box. And that is why you're the co-host and I am not. That's some good <laughs> stuff. <laughs> I, I accept that praise. So we've had a good discussion of this film, I think. Um, would you uh, Would you recommend this movie, Ray? Oh, it's a tough one. I mean, if you're into the genre, for sure. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it's got some iconic characters and some uh, some nice items, and it really sticks out. So if you're into horror and, and pretty gory, I mean, this was this was yeah. gory for me. Um, mm-hmm. So if you're into that, that's your thing, for sure. I mean, it feels like you got to go back and read the classics. I mean, it does feel like it fits, uh, has a very very uh, solid place in the in the history of the genre. I would would also recommend it. You know, I tried to convince my wife to watch it with me, and she had no interest <laughs> whatsoever. So I watched it while she went to her bowling league. But um, it is iconic. It's it's a smart movie. It you know the, the scope is a bit limited, but I think it works with the story. Um, the the sequel to this uh, Hellbound Hellraiser two is a pretty interesting continuation because it's about. Um, Oh, it's about... Well, maybe we should save that for that episode. But... Yeah, I guess, but just, just to tease it, you know, it's about Kirsty kind of going into the Cenobite world. Uh, see, now I'm interested. It's a good tease, because right. I'm interested, and it's not something that I'm like, oh, I'm going to go watch them all, but I, I do want to know more about the Cenobites, although it sounds like that kind of gets ruined, but I do want to know more. A little bit. You know, it's almost more like Labyrinth meets Hellraiser, the second one. It's, um... <laughs> so, take it or leave it, but at least it, it's a good... Uh, concluding piece to this first one but um yeah so i i think this is a good film it's a classic iconic monster designs uh i'm always surprised there's less of the cenobites in here than i thought but perhaps that's for the best it you know it just seems the right amount it's not too many notes uh thrasher i'm gonna say sequel yes this is this is just a good film on its own uh, and would be just a really fun, entertaining oddity of horror cinema, uh, it, even if it hadn't spawned a franchise. And just, it's great to to see where this franchise began and to see where all the ideas were so fresh and where there was so much where there was so much potential. I cannot believe Roger Ebert said this film had a bankruptcy of imagination. <laughs> That's... Yeah, that that is a, a strange comment to make. Although one thing I did notice, it's even right on the poster. One critic uh, said the best horror film ever made in Britain, which you think like ever made in Britain sounds like a kind of damning qualifier, but but I mean not so. That's where Hammer horror films were from. I, I think I I would consider that high praise, knowing the history of British horror. Maybe he just. He, he thinks it's uh, it's not so much imagination as fetish, because, man, this thing's like, you know, like a lot of fetish in it. <laughs> it's a fetish film. In fact, they, they claim that um, like piercings and S&M and tattoos became more popular because of Hellraiser. Mm. Interesting. So I don't know how you'd prove that, but I don't... Right. I don't know if I'd want to prove that. How would you dig down to the bottom of that story? Um so now we're going to go into a segment, pitch a sequel, in which we pretend there are no, you know, gazillion sequels made to this movie, and we come up with an idea for a sequel. Um, I think I'll begin. I like the idea of of the different Cenobites, and you, you don't see them a lot. And I think the idea, this would be sort of a, uh, a uh, anthology film, where it'd be... The, the chattering Cenobite, where you have a pinhead, you have the butterball, the fat one, you have the female Cenobite. They're all sitting like at a at a bar in, in hell, drinking, <laughs> drinking you know, flaming shots, literally, and talking to other monsters. It's sort of like a, a dark uh, cantina Star Wars scene. And, and they're sitting around at, at, a, at a booth, and they're all telling stories about how they ended up uh, as a Cenobite. And we sort of get, in my idea, you get sort of, you know, 24... Uh, 20 minute stories from each one of them with kind of a wraparound story and 
it, some of the stories might be funny and some of them might be serious, but I think at the end it would give you a different perspective on these character characters. And it would be called, thank you dog for barking, it would be called um, Cenobite, Cenobite Stories, Hellraiser the Cenobite Stories. <laughs> so the Red Foot Diaries. <laughs> yeah, sure. The Red Pin Diaries, I don't know. Jeez. Um, Pinheads Pen Pals. Uh, right? It could be an epistolary movie. Nice. Well, this is, I mean, I, this is one I hadn't thought of, but I mean, I'm definitely down for a prequel. Like, I want to know how Pinhead gets to his position of, of the leader, right? Like, hmm. he's the, everyone's so, you know, subservient to him, and, you know, he seems so dominating, but I feel like he's a little insecure at the same time. So I'd be very curious to see Pinhead's rise to power or, you know, something like that. So, yeah, maybe we'll call it that. We'll call it Hellraiser Pinhead's Rise. And that's a play on the uh, the, the porn-like uh, fetish of this movie. <laughs> there you go. Thrasher. All right, so my uh, mine's going to be an outright sequel. So one thing that I love about this film that, regrettably, the sequels don't take advantage of is that at the end of the movie, the box is in the same place that it was in the beginning, implying that anybody could pick up this box at any time and you could get a completely different movie with completely different characters. So that's what I'm going to do. The next film's going to open with another person purchasing the puzzle box from this mysterious merchant for a huge stack of money, only this person isn't grimy and gritty with horrible fingernails. He's actually very clean cut and very well spoken, and we find out why. So the first Hellraiser was all about the, the pleasures and, and sins of the flesh. My sequel is going to all be about the pleasures and sins of the mind. Uh, the puzzle box has been purchased by a mathematician and theoretical physicist who is you know, trying to prove the existence of uh, other dimensions and has kind of become, uh, though he has acquired tenure, has become something of a laughingstock because of his strange outlandish theories that quite frankly he does not have the math to prove uh and hearing about the puzzle box and what it can potentially do he figures well i've tried everything else i might as well try this and so he studies the puzzle box and uses it as the basis for a whole other a whole new branch of physics that puts general relativity special relativity and string theory uh to shame and in fact draws himself to the brink of madness studying the puzzle box working out these equations extrapolated from it uh and eventually sacrificing the lives of graduate students in the pursuit of finding undeniable proof of other dimensions i mean he he does eventually start uh, opening gateways without the puzzle box just by virtue of the equations he's able to work out and he he sends people through lab assistants through to, to gain to gain evidence of strange exotic matter and exotic life forms uh, and they do inevitably start dying or getting replaced with even more horrible creatures uh, and he is eventually undone by the Cenobites because the, uh, the Cenobites they, this is not what they the, the what they believe the puzzle box should be used for. Uh, they don't like the fact that this genius, mad genius professor is gaining all their knowledge, but without using them as intermediaries. So uh, it will end with a whole army of Cenobites besieging the university uh, to capture this, uh, to capture this professor. Uh, and uh, in this one, 
there will have been a a quiet kind of bookish uh, student in the background of a lot of shots. Uh, kind of, you know, the the oddball academic that I think we all we all met at different uh, uh, stages of our academic career. That person is the one who retrieves the puzzle box, turns into the hideous skeletal demon, and flies back to Morocco. Wow, you know, outside of podcasting, video production is my specialty. So cool. if you want to shoot that, I mean, you, you got it all laid out. That's deep. That's awesome. I, I just need a script, man. You got a script. Start writing. Sounds like you already wrote it. <laughs> I'm thorough. I am thorough. Very good. Um, so now we're going to move on to the final segment of the show, What You're Watching, where we talk about something where that uh, either a movie or a TV show you've seen or a book you've read lately. Um, Thrasher, why don't you begin? All right. Well, so I spent uh, uh, this past weekend out of town. Uh, I was uh, in Ohio uh, as a vendor uh, and assistant to Andy Hopp at Oddmall, uh, which we had a, the Riverside Ramble event, which was fun. So I didn't have time uh, this uh, this weekend to watch a full movie, but I did have time to watch a uh, short documentary. Uh, and what I watched was the uh the sort of fifth pseudo episode of the Netflix comedy series with Bob and David. And for those of you who haven't seen it, the fifth episode isn't an episode of with Bob and David. It's a, it's a documentary about the comedic process that Bob Odenkirk, David Cross and Dino Stamatopoulos have when they're, when they're writing comedy. And it was very, it was very enjoyable, both, both as a, a fan of their work and a comedy geek, but just the, the look at their process was great. I mean, there's there's a great... I wish they did more of this, but there's a great moment. There's a sketch about Einstein and the famous Einstein with the stung, tongue stuck out poster. They show almost the entirety of that sketch without sound, uh, cutting between foot th that sketch and Bob Odenkirk, David Cross, and Dino Stamatopoulos in a room just pitching out the sketch and figuring out what its beats are and figuring out where it's going to go. And it's it's just so wonderful and informative to see the inception of the idea and the execution at the same time. Hmm. Um, was this the one made for Netflix? Ah, yes, yes, it was. And and, and it is for the, for those who don't know, it is the follow up to their nineteen nineties sketch show, Mister Show with Bob and David. That I enjoy. Oh, it's a good series. Do you know if they're supposed to do more stuff for Netflix, or is that it? The one. Well, as as I understand it, like the offer, like was open, but I think a lot of it has to do with when when they have the time. I mean, part part of the reason, part of the reason uh, that with Bob and David even happened was because a whole holes opened up in everybody's schedule because it was uh, made, I think, right before Better, Better Call Saul started. So. Uh, they, uh, Bob Odenkirk had free time. It was after the final season of Arrested Development had been filmed, so David Cross had a lot of free time. Uh, and it was also like when I forget like what time of year they made it, but like not many comedians were on tour at that time, so they were able to get Jay Johnston and uh, and uh, Tom Kenny and uh, Paul F. Tompkins involved. So I think that I think for for more to happen that that same kind of gap in everybody's schedule needs to open up because they have said they want to do more it's all about getting the time yeah and they've all been pretty uh pretty busy as well with their different careers um 
I went to the theater, and I'm not going to spoil the movie, but I'll just talk about it uh, briefly. I, I saw Alien Covenant in the theater this past weekend, oh. a new Alien film. Um, it's a you know prequel to Alien. It takes place after Prometheus, and um, if you haven't seen Prometheus, you'll be very confused by Alien Covenant. We went I with bet. someone who had not seen Prometheus, and he had no idea what was going on. <laughs> it's um, more of an Alien movie than Prometheus was. But on the some, you know, in some ways, I liked it better. It was less obtuse, but at the same time, it seemed more um, dumbed down. At the same time, I, I can't tonally. It, it seemed like a few different movies going on at once, and I'd be happy if they made no more Alien prequels for the time being. But apparently, Ridley Scott wants to make four more Alien prequels, <laughs> so um, we'll see how this one does. But I want to, I want to ask because I heard, I have heard multiple one critic and multiple just you know viewers tell me that this movie feels like an apology for prometheus which is a movie i don't think needed an, uh, to give an apology but uh, do, you, do you think that's fair or does it feel that way i mean listen prometheus was just called prometheus this is called alien covenant and i think it this is more i think perhaps in the movie people were expecting but it does answer some of the questions uh, raised in prometheus but it also keeps some things vague. I mean, certainly you could do a sequel to this, but also this takes place, I think, a decade uh, after Prometheus. So you could do a movie in between if you wanted. I have no idea what Ridley Scott wants to do. You know, it's not like in Alien Covenant we get a character that's like Ripley's great-grandmother or something. Um, <laughs> although he certainly could could lead it that way if he wanted. I, I will say, uh, even though the aliens were done with CG, I was pretty pleased with the animation. I think they did a a pretty good job, and Ridley Scott, uh, at the very least, can make a movie look good. And um, Dave uh, Michael Fassbender is um, good in the movie. Prometheus antagonist reminds me a lot of uh, Pinhead. <laughs> I could see that. <laughs> yeah, glowing sure. whitehead, yeah. big pale guy, glowing right. Good connection. Whitehead, maybe uh, a little more Into muscles. Leather. He he takes off on a spaceship to fly towards Earth. I enjoyed that movie, actually, and I always feel guilty because I always hear, never hear anything good about it, but I, I, I feel like I yeah. enjoyed it. I, I, really, I enjoyed it, too. I, I liked I, it. I really appreciate how they maintained that sort of early, late 70s science fiction aesthetic with the computers, where it's a mm. bunch of green and red dots blinking. That was nice. Um, Ray, what is uh, something that you've uh, seen or read lately? Well... Going back to fourth dimensions and special relativity, I am trying. I'm probably on my fourth go round at hacking away at Einstein's biography, Ooh. which it's not a page turner, but it's interesting. And you know, it's a massive. It's I read the Steve Jobs biography and then um, blanking on his name, who writes all those biographies. But he, you know, he did the Einstein one before that, and so I thought I would tackle that. And it's good. It's interesting, uh, but again not the page turner that I'm usually getting from some sci-fi book that I'm reading, but it's okay. And I'll, I'll interject another book in between that and then return to it. But yeah, I feel like I'm not watching stuff so much these days, you know, being a content creator, you guys, I like how you built it in. Like it's built into the show. You got to watch something. But mm -hmm. these days I'm putting out, I feel like between, you know, being a dad and then creating uh, various podcasts, it's like, where's their time? Oh, and YouTube. 
but uh, so much so that I've been able to, I finally cut the cord, so to speak. I guess it's more accurate to say cut the cable because I still have the internet. You know, got to have that. Got to have the big pipe for that. And mm-hmm. I've gone to uh, Apple TV with uh, Sling. So I have Sling and I get a few things. But what was real interesting is that on Sling, and I'm not used to, anytime you have like a special, like, oh, we're going to give you uh, Showtime for three weeks, I feel like. You have to do something extra, but it just showed up like six different Showtime channels apparently now, hmm. and it just showed up on my Sling box that I discovered last night, our, our Sling app, and I was like, oh my gosh, I can go back and uh, I left Homeland like two seasons ago, oh yeah, uh, because I don't pay for it, and uh, I told my wife, I'm like, we can binge. Do you think we can binge two seasons in like 24 <laughs> hours? Uh, and I, I'm going to have to just write it off. I can't do it. But uh, I started watching a little bit of one today, and I'm like, oh, I'm back in, man. So I may spend the rest of this evening, or I might be up most of the night, <laughs> binging Homeland. But I really enjoyed it. It didn't, you know, I don't know. I mean, we're six seasons in now, and I don't know if it's gone off the rails. And there have been better seasons than others. But I enjoy the series. I think it's good. Yeah, I did read that Steve Jobs biography you mentioned by Walter Isaacson. Yes, and Isaacson. It's I, a page now. That one is a page turner. Yeah, um, it made me appreciate aesthetics a bit more as a whole, which I was a bit surprised by. And uh, it also wasn't afraid to make Steve Jobs look like a dick. Um, That's it. If he, I yeah. said, I said, if if you came away from that book and and thought <laughs> he was more amazing, then you didn't really read the book because it doesn't do a job. It does not. It does not just paint him as. It does. You think going in, you're like, oh, this is just going to be a, you know. A, a total, a total like uh, hand job to Steve Jobs. Like right, it's just going right. to be all love for him, and it wasn't at all. And and like you said, it paints him as not such a nice guy. I think anyone who's interested, I think everyone should read it just for a history of computers. That is what it's most interesting sure. to me. It just gives you a real history of basically uh, the you know the advent of the personal computer. It makes you feel bad for uh, Wozniak. Yeah, mm-hmm. although I don't know. I mean, I think. I don't know. Waz feels like, yeah, I don't know. Waz feels like such a free spirit, and I just don't know. It does, but at the same time, like, I don't know if Waz feels that bad. I don't think he would have stayed with the company anyway. Uh, If you like that, you might like an older book called um, Hackers, Heroes of the Computer Revolution by Stephen Levy. Nice. This was uh, released, I think, in the late 80s, and they go into crazy stories of, um, you know, not just... uh, computer but sort of you know early video game atari people about how much drugs these wacky guys were on and and it was a real um free-spirited way these companies were run i think ultimately to their detriment they kept on burning through money nonstop. but um sure it was a very interesting i think that's also a pretty good read and um also there's that tv show halt and catch fire Mm, yes i haven't seen seen it but i've heard of it. it yeah you might like it it's um the first season, at least, is loosely based on compact computers, reverse engineering a, a IBM-compatible computer. That's cool. Yep. Um, all right. So, uh, right. Thanks for coming on on SequelCast 2. If um, it, you mentioned people can go to thepodcasterstudio.com to listen to your podcast over there. If you were to, let's say if one of our listeners had an idea like, hey, I, I want to start a podcast. You mentioned you... Uh, in your episode 101 of your show, you're going to be kind of a good basics on podcasting. But if someone, you know, just had an idea for a podcast and all they had was the built-in microphone in their laptop, would you recommend they get started just with that or they should save up money first? Or Yeah, I mean, I would start 
you know, maybe sketching out and outlining episodes while mm-hmm. you're saving your pennies, I would go with a minimum. You should, can you record? Yeah. I mean, at that point, you probably have a smartphone and you can do even a better recording on that. Sure. But, you know, and I do want people to get started because no one's listening in the beginning anyways. And so <laughs> the key is to actually get started. But yeah, I would make that investment. Um, but you can start, you can start creating episodes, uh, building the outlines for them. And like I said, if, if you absolutely have to record them, go ahead, use your phone, get close to that built-in microphone. And, you know, I always say grow as you go, but the main key is you do have to start and you have to record. You have to hit publish. It has to go out in the world before it actually gets better. Right. I mean, you can record Mm, practice all you want and play it back and listen, but until it's out there and it's not coming back, that's when you start growing. So yeah, you know, if you don't have the budget right now, but you absolutely want to get started, do it. But make sure, I think the most important thing is to make sure whatever you're doing is, you know, a little bit, a lot of it is for yourself. You need to create the podcast you want to create because as we sort of alluded to in the beginning or we talked about in the beginning is that it will become a grind, even if it's enjoyable, it's still something you have to do on a regular basis and life happens, things happen. So it has to be that thing you just love talking about or researching or spending your time reading blog posts or books about. So do it for yourself. Like, and then, you know, you can then take the audience feedback. Once the audience shows up, you can integrate that if you want and make your own decisions, but definitely start and definitely make it something uh, that you absolutely are interested in. And those two things will probably keep you around past, you know, episode 10, 20, maybe 150. It is amazing. I spent the other day, you know, spent an hour just clicking through iTunes randomly under different podcasts and how many of them don't even make it past episode five. Yeah. And the magic number, we always, it's kind of a joke at this point, but it's episode seven and it's like, you know, something like 50% of podcasts don't make it past episode seven and another 50% don't make it past 10. And it's something like once you hit episode 20, there's it's you can kind of see statistically most people are going to be around at least for a year at that point. But yeah, you can really see the numbers drop off. And, you know, I always tell that to people who are starting a podcast and they go to something like Apple podcast, which is now as, as known as iTunes, they rebranded. But mm-hmm. when you go in there and you think, Oh, I want to do, I want to do a, a show about old movies, right. That I've seen. And you see 20 different shows about it. We'll check those 20 shows. There's probably only two that are actually still producing episodes. Uh, so don't be intimidated by the fact there's a lot. And you know what, even if there are 20 still do it, if that's the show you want to do, do it. Cause you going to, you, you know, it feels cliche, but you are going to have your different perspective and people are going to find that they like the way you present it over another show. So, and again, I think we're most. I think a lot of this we're doing for ourselves. It has to be for ourselves, or we sure. won't show up on a weekly basis. So, just make that podcast. Right, and what I've enjoyed with uh, with my podcast uh, is uh, I've been able to use it to do live podcast at different uh, comic book conventions, which has been fun. Um, yeah, not only awesome. not only as a way to get to conventions for free, but I mean to. Yep. We're talking in front of an audience, and uh, I, you know, the first one of those I did was at LeakyCon, which is this international Harry Potter convention. I, I don't like Harry Potter especially, and that sort of came across in my panel, and um, I got <laughs> ripped to shreds by the audience, but they came. We, nice. <laughs> you know, half of them were my friends, but we had a uh, maybe uh, eighteen people there, and that was eighteen people that could have been doing something else. 
So it was a, it's a, it's always fun being up there. And I want to thank you, Ray, for, for coming on. We've, uh, I think we've learned a lot. Um, I've learned a lot from your show and I've been doing podcasting for over a decade and, uh, I wish you, uh, wish you all the best. Where can people uh, follow you on Twitter? Uh, at podcast helper on Twitter, hit me up if you have questions or just say hi or just follow along and let me know what you're into because, you know, kudos to you. I think this is the first podcast that I've been on where I didn't really talk about podcasting. It was about some other subject that your topic movies, which was a blast for me. Like I'm always just talking about podcasting. So this is so different. In fact, I think I'm going to use this as a tip. Like, okay, you know, the person you invite on your show, they don't, it doesn't have to be an ex- expert in that topic like i don't know there's something here i think is a great way to uh to reach outside of your own niche and bring in other people so yeah man i congrats and uh your show has been going so long it's amazing that you've been podcasting that long so yeah in um, fact i i just went through the interesting experience i don't know if you've covered this in your show but i migrated uh some stuff from libsyn over to podbean yes, which right. is quite um sort of more complicated than i expected but i like that podbean has the uh, it gives you the ability to sell past episodes, um, mm. which I might do for some of my older series. I'm not sure, but the migration was quite a bit more complicated than I thought it would be. Yeah, you know, it's never fun, and that's usually why I tell people to set up, you know, try to do it right in the beginning. And a lot of people who want to host on their own server, right. you know, their shared hosting or something, and I, I say you're probably going to migrate at some point, and that you're either going to pay it all back or just in time, or it's just a headache. Um, you know, you can do that with Lipson too, but you do have to be at a higher level. You can probably do it less on Podbean or selling your back catalog. But, um, yeah, just, you know, some decent paid hosting is going to save you a lot of trouble, but I've definitely done the migration. Even recently, I, I've moved everything from my sites actually to Lipson because, you know, running a website is just, expensive. it's not when you do your own WordPress, it's, it's yeah. expensive. It can be expensive and it, it can just a be a headache. Yeah. Sure. I mean, we want to do podcasts. I don't want to do website dev every week. All right, you don't want to dick around with the image size to get it to look right on your phone. Yeah, right. there's a lot of little things you don't think about. All right, well, thank, thanks so much, Ray. We'll um, have a link to your show in the show notes, and I'll definitely hit you up uh, when the show comes out. And I'll, um, I'll give you Thrasher's email so he can send you that script about multi-interdimensional uh, whatchamacallits. That's right. Let's shoot <laughs> it. Thrasher, there's so much. Uh, so, so cool to meet you, man. And uh you too, man. It was fun. That was uh, it was enjoyable feedback. I'm gonna have to come to you for my other. Uh, when I watch a movie, I'm like, explain that to me because seriously, <laughs> I'm the worst. I'd, I'm I'd the love worst. to. Even if I don't really know what's going on, I can usually concoct a, a plausible a plausible answer. Nice. Well, great to meet you, and uh, thanks you guys for having me on. It was Absolutely. a blast. Thanks so much, Ray. Hey, Matt, I will send you a. Um, I don't know if I cut in your recording there. I don't know if that was post or. Oh no! But, no, uh, go on. I can send you my end here if you're going to do double enders. Um, yeah, yeah, you might as well just send it to the same email. Yeah. And uh, Thrasher, you can just put it in the Dropbox now. Um, cool. I have I have a few different options, so we'll see uh, what, what ends up working. Awesome. All right, thanks, guys. You're welcome. Bye. See you. Okay, well, that was a lot of fun with Ray Ortega from the Podcaster Studio. Uh, Thrasher, is yeah. there anything else you'd like to talk about before we tease next week's show? Uh, yes, this is actually uh, related uh, so, right after we had decided, we had made the decision to cover the first four Hellraiser films in the sequel cast, uh, I was at our local Peddler's Mall and stumbled across a paperback copy of The Hellbound Heart, the Clive Barker novel. Oh, okay, yeah, I've never read it. Film. Uh-huh. So, 
Uh, I am going to start reading it uh, this very night, the night where we recorded our first episode on the series. Uh, if everything goes according to plan, I should have finished the novel uh, by the time we record our last episode uh, for this series of, of, of films. And I would love to do a little kind of book report as some bonus content on the show, uh, talking about the, the book, how the movie flows from the source material, what's present in each version, what's absent. Uh, I, I just think that would be really fun. It's a book I've been meaning to read forever, and this just gives me the perfect justification. Very good. I think, um, yeah, you know, maybe I'll do something where I interview you asking you stuff about the book, because cool. I've never read it. I know the book isn't terribly long, but uh, I, I'm a bit cheap, as you listeners might have figured out by now. But I'll go to a used bookstore, and I'll see The Hellbound Heart is like $10. And I'm like, mm, that's a little bit too much for me. So, I think I paid $1.50 for this. Well, there you go. One. I think, you know, part in, uh, in Portland, Oregon, we have Powell's Bookstore. And they, they're the biggest game in town, and they tend to mark stuff up as they get more and more popular. Um, although I did get a wonderful, uh, sort of off topic, but I got a vintage celebrity cookbook from the early 80s based on a newspaper column uh, from a, a New York newspaper where the local gossip columnist went and got uh, different things. Um, got, you know, Woody Allen's clam recipe or whatever it is. Cool. Now, when you said it was a vintage uh, uh, celebrity cookbook from the 80s, my thoughts immediately went to, oh, is it Alf? Yeah, no, it's not Alf. Hey, Willie. Uh, that's not what he sounds like. Here's a recipe for cat. Uh, but it does have these Al Hirschfeld style, uh, almost ethnically insensitive drawings of the celebrities. Dustin Hoffman has a huge nose, um, but you know that sort of thing. But is it Hirschfeld or is it just a, an aping of his style? It's an aping of his style. It's not Hirschfeld proper, but like, it, it, you know, some of the interviews in there are pretty bland. You sort of have a one-page profile interview and so forth. But the other part, you know, but Dustin Hoffman will talk about like he loves. Uh, the cheap hot dogs from a baseball stadium. He could eat five of them right now. You know, some of them are more uh, juicy little tidbits for those that care. And, and other of them are just sort of like, I don't cook much at home, but when I do, I cook my chicken and wheat germ. And, and so it's um, very peculiar, you know, it's sort of uh, recipes of the time. Um, Havana said, Matt, why did you, how did you order this book? And I, I, I just find the, uh, I like the novelty of celebrity cookbooks. And I think that it's, random like one pages of this random stuff of unhealthy food from a time gone by makes it an amusing read for me um <laughs> I, I, I i had this image in my head of uh of dustin hoffman like framed between two kind of like arcing hot dogs saying <laughs> oscar meyer are you trying to seduce me <laughs> it's a little bit too much uh, mustard on there i don't know what yeah that was not <laughs> i got hoffman. one word for you son Mustard. Hey, look at this mustard over here. Oh, I just don't know what's happening. What is that? Trying to do it's, like, it's a combination of a bad Johnny Carson and a bad uh, Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> I tell you, I uh, don't get uh, no respect. That is weird. <laughs> um, so I think we should close out this episode with a uh, a little um, improv comedy oh? bit. We're gonna, we're going to. Uh, I, I found I dug through the, my uh, attic. Of course, I have an attic because I live in a one bedroom apartment, and uh, I found a, a old cassette tape tape of uh, a dupe of the original sequel cast uh, program from the BBC from England, 
from the uh, 1960s talking about um, one of the uh, the Hammer horror films. Really? Yeah. Let's uh, let's take a listen. And now this is sequel cast from BBC Three talking about the Hammer horror films, the Dracula films starring Christopher Lee. Here we have our host here, Reginald Dwight. And I am Charles Wilberforce. Fortunately, Reginald Dwight couldn't make it in the office, so instead we have his wife, Jeannie Bottocks. Oh, hello! Welcome to Sequel Cast 2! I like Christopher Lee, he has big teeth! Yes, I'm very well aware of your dental fetishes, madam. Hey, so, in, in the Dracula movie, I don't understand why he goes up like this and uh, he bites the women on the neck. Can't he just give them a little smooch instead? Most simple child, it is the vampire mythos. It is a creature which sustains itself on the blood of the innocent. A peck on the cheek just wouldn't do it, love. Uh, a mythos? I had mythos for dinner last night. It had lots of cheese and ketchup on the top. Very yummy. Made it for my American friends. Oh, I say you're friends with some Yanks. Yes, and uh, as I said, you know, if they treat uh, if they treat me good, I give them some Yanks in return. If you know what I mean. Oh, that's quite right. You are a prostitute. Yes, a prostitute. Uh, sometimes film expert, of course. Uh, mainly an expert on on film teeth. And Christopher Lee, boy, he has some pointy ones. Oh, did he now? Spare no juicy detail. Well, he, uh, his molars, you know, were rotted on the inside from hitting too many uh, Turkish lights as a child. But uh, when they screwed the vampire teeth, it blocked up the gaps, and uh, Christopher Lee uh, thought it made him more virile. He'd sometimes keep them on when uh, going home to the missus. Oh, that would explain my bite marks, then. What? And that was, that was sequel cast from BBC Three. In the late 1960s. Goodbye. Now, the thing I like about the BBC, they're so professional, they'll even tell you what year they're signing off in. And that they don't commit to the year, they just sort of say, like, a, a late decade. Um, maybe we'll hear yeah. from them again if if, uh, if people like those discoveries I can dig around in the attic. Or, uh, you know, is it the next Shecky Spielberg? That's the real question. Um, <laughs> I Personally, I, I'm, I'm waiting for us to uh, to listen to our Spanish uh, Spanish broadcasting equivalent Le Sequelisto Le Sequelisto Taco Brito e uh, Salsa con Queso Ay 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 I I <laughs> I, I, I am not going to commit to this bit Nope Okay Follow me on Twitter <laughs> at Follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T You can follow me at internet mayor although at this point i'm not sure why you'd want to and uh what's uh what's something you've been working on that people can check out lately thrasher oh man uh, something i've been working on um at the moment uh at the moment no new releases however i am currently working on a card game illustrations for dagon industries when that gets close to publication i'll be able to sh uh, share some more details but uh, it is related to the Cthulhu mythos. So if you're a fan of Cthulhu and escaping from danger and screwing up other people who are trying to escape from danger, uh, this will be the card game for you. 
Again, you know, speaking of Cthulhu, uh, this week on uh, this isn't a sponsor, but I just it happened to be a happenstance. Uh, good old games at GOG.com. They're doing a sale on some Cthulhu-themed uh, games where they have older games and they make it so they work on new computers, such as the oh, original yeah. Alone in the Dark trilogy and the two cool. uh, Call of Cthulhu adventure games from the 90s, Prisoner of Ice and Shadow of the Comet. Oh, no, that's something I'm going to have to check out. You can pick those up for, um, you know, it's between like $1 or $2 a piece uh, with the sale. Uh, so if you like Cthulhu, that might be worth uh, checking out. Um, I've been, you know, keeping up writing for Games Radar. I just uh, did a piece for him, Want to Make Your Own YouTube Gaming Series, Here's How It's Done. And I actually had to break out the old journalism skills and do interviews with, uh, you know, YouTube celebrities such as Pushing Up Roses, Kim Justice, Jeremy Parrish, and DJ Slope. So that was um, that was real fun to put together. It's, uh, it's, very, it's an interesting exercise to take interviews and try to craft it in an article that flows. I tend that to is like, really cool. Yeah, I, I tend to like the oral history format because I'm lazy, but I couldn't get away <laughs> with that, so I had to do a heavy rewrite, and uh, they, they liked it. So um, I'll be doing some more stuff for them, and then I have some, um, like, a, a horror Atari video game piece that I'm working on for another website that I, I've done the research. I just need to get off my butt and write the thing. And uh, I'm also eagerly awaiting the new Twin Peaks that just started on Showtime. Cool. On Twitter, I'm at M-A-T-W-B-T. Follow SequelCast2 at SequelCast2 on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Leave a review on iTunes. Search SequelCast2 and leave a review. We could use more of those. Uh, next time, we're going to be talking about Hellbound Hellraiser 2. And uh, I just sort of, I think this might be a good idea to give an idea of what we're doing the next few weeks so listeners have a chance to catch up. Uh, next week, we're doing Hellbound Hellraiser 2. The week after that, we're going to be doing Hellraiser 3. And after that, we're going to be doing Hellraiser Revelations. Why don't I know the title for these things? These things are so damn confusing. It's another pre-search failure. But yeah, also, yes. they don't follow standard sequel names. No, they don't. So, uh, so next week, Hellbound, Hellraiser 2. The week after, Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. The week after that, Hellraiser Bloodline. And uh, then we'll be done talking about the Hellraiser theatrical films and move on to something else. Excellent. For sequel cast 2, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher saying, come to daddy. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.